Hey, good morning. Man, uh, when we got finished shooting that particular part of the clip, we all had to sort of take a break and breathe deep and reach for the Kleenex. Uh, so appreciate Paige being willing to share with us some of the wisdom she has learned through one of life's difficult tragedies. And so let's have a word of prayer, and we'll look at that topic this morning. Lord, you're beautiful to us. Thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your incredible testimony in the lives of your people. And I ask, Lord, that as we uh, jump into the message today, that you would hide me deep, deep, deep in your cross. Uh, we didn't come here to see a person, Lord. We came here to hear from you, and we need to hear from you. So have your way in my heart. Have your way in the hearts of those who are listening to the sound of my voice. And may we all leave here, man, a, a challenged to change, uh, transformed by your power and your presence. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, happy Father's Day to you. Happy Father's Day to those in the chapel and those at the Pleasant View campus. We're thankful uh, to, uh, to celebrate that with you. Uh, so I got to stick my head in a meeting uh, a couple weeks ago uh, that was discussing what to do on Father's Day and how to honor fathers. And so, you know, I, I wasn't supposed to be making any decisions related to that, but, but you all know me. So I stuck my head in there and just kind of had a discussion with people. And they were having all these different ideas. And and, um, and so I said, listen, fathers, when, when, when I became a father, it was like my, my love blew up. I don't know how to say it. I'm not the emotional, most emotionally astute person on the planet for sure. But like I went into the hospital, a husband, I came out the hospital, a father. And there was no user manual or anything like that. But all I can tell you is uh, up to that point, there was a love and, um, and I had experienced it. But man, when the kids came... It's like love just went, you know, like, like, I don't know if you paint a room and just blow it up with paint somehow. That's kind of what happened in my heart, and that's all that I can explain. So I said, this deserves much celebration. And so that's how we got to boiled peanuts. And so I just want, to know, I just want you to know how honored, not just boiled peanuts, but there's a special treat for you when you leave today, and it has to do, it rhymes with Slim and Jim. And so I am so excited to be able to share that with you guys today in celebration of being fathers. Hey, listen, I know some of us are good fathers, some of us have had crappy fathers, and I understand that, okay? But if you look around, fatherhood is still an awesome, awesome thing that is to be celebrated in our culture and community, so I hope you're able to do that today. If not in your own family, certainly in families of people that you're worshiping with. Have you ever, have you ever noticed that um, life doesn't stop just because you're having a, a bad day? <laughs> or or have, you, have you ever noticed life doesn't stop because you're having a bad week, or maybe a bad month, or maybe even a bad year? I mean, you don't get to get a pass. You can't call up life and say, hey, life, I'm going to take today off. I'm just not feeling well. There's no comp time, you know, when it, come, when it comes to life. We have to show up every day, and we have to do life every day. There's no way, no way to bail out of it. And when your relationship world starts to grow in richness, like we're celebrating today with Father's Day, we did a couple weeks ago with Mother's Day, when that relationship world starts to grow in richness and breadth, more people are impacted by your life. Does that make sense? More people are impacted by your life, which sort of adds to the pressure of not being able to take a day off of life. Have you noticed that? So because if I bail on a day off of life, there's a lot of people that are going to notice that now. Hey, you know, where's Tom? Well, he's bailing on life today. If I have 25 people in my sphere of influence, people who know me and who have some connection to me, then whatever happens in my life impacts their lives. I guess I would sort of maybe call this like the ripple effect, if you've heard of that idea before. So my decisions, my failures, my successes impact every person in my sphere of influence. Now, some of those people are impacted in a major way. Some people would be impacted kind of minimally. There have actually been some studies on this phenomenon. Get this. 
if you live to be 78 years old, and some of you are like on borrowed time right now, but if you live to be 78 years old, if that's the kind of average lifespan, we will interact, get this, with somewhere close to 80,000 people. So you turn to look to the person to your left and to your right. That's 160,000 people that they're just to the left and to the right, just if we do on average thing. Just to kind of put that in perspective, you know, do you all know how many, how many uh, Memorial Stadium or Death Valley seats do you know? 81,500 people. Do you know how much williams Bryce Stadium seats down where the Gamecocks play? Who cares? Okay, so, so <clears throat> I know, send me an email, I don't care. So my life, your life, our lives is really, is really uh, lived, if you will, in the ripples of other lives. Because if my life's going to reach 80,000, and your life's going to reach 80,000, and your life's going to reach 80,000, well, then we're sort of living in the ripples of each other's lives. It's the way the world works. But what happens when I'm having a a doggone bad day? (laughs) What happens when, when I'm having this moment of intensity or a moment when life is heating up beyond my capabilities? What happens when I've just lost my mom? I remember C.S. Lewis uh, reflecting on the loss of his spouse. And he talks about being, I think, at a bus station. And all these people were rushing by. And he just wanted to holler, hey, I just, I'm hurting. I'm wounded. And nobody seems to care. I've experienced the heat of moments like these at different times in my life. And it hasn't necessarily been through a loss. But heat comes in all kinds of ways. When I was in seminary, a question entered my mind, and to be honest, that question stayed with me for a number of years, and it was a question that unmoored me. It was a question that was the very core of who I am. And the reason it was such a big deal, and the reason this question produced some heat in my life was primarily because of what I felt I was supposed to do with my life. Let me just tell you the question, and maybe this will all make sense to you. Here is the question I was facing. What do you do when you're pretty sure you don't believe in God anymore and you're the pastor? Aren't you glad you're here today? I mean, what do you, what do, you do when you're pretty sure you don't believe in God anymore, but you're the, you're the pastor? This question hit me while I was in seminary, and my mind started doing some mental gymnastics, and I found myself, found myself almost afraid to dig deeper into places of doubt in my life. And I remember coming home, and I remember telling Lise, I just kind of looked in the eye and said, honey, I'm... I'm just not sure I believe in God anymore. And that was a good day for both of us, really. We just kind of celebrated that. And we, it's kind of anniversary. I mean, I have, I have a very, I have a very kind of limited skill set. So Lisa's, Lisa's response immediately, I found out later, was, great, now what are you going to do? You know, it's kind of that question, you know, because my skill set's so limited. I thought, well, I'll just have to put Matthew McConaughey out of business, and, you know, maybe I'll do what he does. So I, I eventually wrestled my way through that particular doubt. But my dissatisfaction with God, can I be honest, that didn't go away forever. Even since starting alive, there have been times, even seasons, where God and I have duked it out, where God and I have wrestled. There have been times, listen, just being totally honest with you today, and you don't have to come back, but I have stood in front of hundreds of people, and I've urged people to follow God, then went home and wondered if God was even there. Now, I never tried to hide these things from you all. I kind of brought you in on my own dysfunction, which is something I think all of you like. But it certainly made me uncomfortable at times. And you get this, don't you? If you can get past how uncomfortable you are with what I've just said, you get this. How about this? We understand the weight of having to do life while questioning life. 
We understand that. Everybody in this room understands it. These are moments of intense heat. And you heard it in the video. We believe in God, but we actually wonder if God maybe has lost track of us somewhere on the planet. We think God exists, but honestly we're unsure, listen, of the value of God to my life. What are we supposed to do in moments like these? What are we supposed to do when we're wanting to check out on life and check out on God because we're pretty sure we don't? And then, what are we supposed to do when there's 80,000 people in our ripples? To find some answers to these questions, I want us to revisit the story of Peter in Scripture. Peter's this Jewish boy who ends up becoming a fisherman, and one day Jesus comes by and says, hey, Peter, come follow me and be one of my disciples. And Peter thinks, hey, this has got to be better than fishing. And so, the, so he pulls in his nets and he takes off to follow Jesus. The scripture sort of gives us these glimpses. One thing I love about studying Peter is that he's, the scripture sort of gives us these glimpses into Peter's life and into his spiritual development. And I want to look at a couple of those vignettes with you this morning. Here's, here, here's for the topic. How, would, how do we do life when we're actually questioning life itself? Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And they replied, this is Mark 8, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're one of the prophets. Now at this point in the, in the whole development of Christianity, they don't know who Jesus is. They really aren't sure. The disciples couldn't say, and the people certainly couldn't say, oh, you know, this is the This is the systematic theology for why I believe Jesus is the Son of God. That's not what they would do. They know he's a good teacher. And and to be honest, following Jesus certainly beat fishing for a living because there's a whole lot more excitement. He does interesting stuff. I mean, his first miracle was turning water into wine at a party. I mean, so it was always exciting to be with Jesus. There was some momentum behind this guy, Jesus. But they didn't know who he was. So they make comparisons to what they do know. It makes perfect sense. Well, this must be John the Baptist, must be Elijah. Maybe you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus doesn't let him off the hook. He gets more direct with his question. He goes, okay, that's all good and good. Or good and, that's good. But who, 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 do you, who do you say that I am? So that's what they're all saying. But, but what about you, dude? What, who, who do you say that I am? You live with me. You see me all the time. You see me in front of the crowd. And when crowds aren't around, who do you say I am? And it's at this point that I suspect the majority of the disciples received the spiritual gift of shoelace inspection. (laughs) And so Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And all of them are like, I hope he doesn't call on me. I hope he doesn't call on me, right? Because they simply weren't sure who he was. Except for Peter. Peter hollers out, you're the Christ. That's the word Messiah, anointed. Jesus warned them, don't tell anybody about this. Now, that's freaky scripture right there. Isn't it? You're the Messiah, and then Jesus, that's what happened. And he doesn't just do it here. He does it a couple times in scripture. Uh, This word, of course, is is the word for Messiah. Peter is saying, Jesus, you're Messiah. And now when Peter uses this word Messiah, it's the, the reason this is important to understand is it wouldn't be right to define the word as we do. Because Peter's not thinking of Messiah like we do. He's not thinking of Handel's Messiah. He's not thinking about the manger and the cross and resurrection. Peter is thinking what most Jewish people thought when it came to Messiah. 
This dude, Messiah, is going to raise us to political power and prominence. That's what everybody was thinking. And that's why Jesus says what he says at the end of this verse. Jesus does this a couple of times, so it can be confusing, but here's here's the deal. Jesus knows if people find out he's Messiah, the people are going to want to revolt. It's going to be a, they're going to want a military leader to lead Jewish people out of oppression and into political and world dominance. That's what they're going to want. And if that erroneous message gets out, it will produce incredible momentum in the wrong direction for the Jewish people. So Jesus immediately begins to change the perceptions of Messiah with his next words. Instead of military and political leader, when they say you're Messiah, they're going to get something else. And this is what Jesus says next. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. Pause. This is a mind-blown moment for the disciples. Your Messiah may suffer, but not our Messiah. Suffer many things and be rejected. Pause. By the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. Wait, by the religious leaders? And, and, and that he must be killed. I don't want anything to do with this Messiah. And then after three days, rise again. In these, this one verse, Jesus is totally shattering everybody who's listening to him and their understanding of Messiah. All those people want him to lead a revolution. But what they really needed is a sacrifice. And this description of Messiah that we all understand, but it would have been a shock to the system for the disciples. So Peter pulls Jesus aside. Peter takes Jesus aside and began to, what's the word? Now, you all know I'm not bright. But generally it's not good to rebuke God. As a general rule, don't try to, don't try to do that to God. And so here's Peter is telling Jesus, he better be good or I'm going to spank you, Messiah. You better be good. That's what's going to happen. That's what, Je- that's what Peter is saying to Jesus. Now write this down. Never rebuke Jesus. This is a bad idea. Let me just make it more simple. He God, you not. Don't rebuke God. That's, don't do that. Jesus had, or Peter had just proclaimed, oh, you're the Messiah. And then the Messiah speaks, and Peter says, bad Jesus, bad, bad, bad Jesus. That just happened, like, in this moment. Now, watch the turn of events right here, because right after Peter tried to make Messiah what his expectations were, and Jesus said, no, here's what the Messiah is, when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. It's a slap fest. You know, that's kind of what's going on in this passage. Really, it's in the Bible. Read it for yourself. Get behind me, Satan. That's kind of direct. That's hurtful. We're going to need therapy for that. Get behind me, Satan, he said, so you do not have in mind the things of God, but you have in mind the things of man. You know, this is one of those stories in Scripture where it seems like everybody needs to be on medicine to me. Right? Think about it. Can't we just hug this out? Come on, Jesus. Everybody, Peter, let's all get inside. Let's hug this out. How about a Snickers? Everybody eat a Snickers. That's what everybody needs to do because y'all are seeming really whacked out right now. The change in emotions is dramatic. For Peter, this is a bad day. He went from being called, you know, blessed, you know, build on those rocks, I'll build this church, to all of a sudden, he's just been called Satan by the person he admires most in the world. So here's the connection. 
following Jesus will look different than you think it should. And that's what I tried to describe to you earlier as I shared some of my story. You see, I assumed following God meant I would be one of his prized possessions. And you can make fun of me, you can laugh, that's, that's a legit funny thing. But I did. Honestly, I mean, I would, never, I would never say that because I know all the right answers. But secretly, there was a motivation in my heart and life that said, you know what? God will absolutely make sure nothing ever touches me. I knew it wasn't supposed to be easy as a Christian, but I secretly believed it would. And respectfully, so do a good many of you. And that's why we're totally unmoored when tragedy strikes us. Wait, 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 Lord, I'm one of yours. I figured I was now God's favorite. And so, I mean, I'm actually on the, I'm on the team, you know? So now he would protect me from hurt or from doubt or from insecurity or for condemnation. And one day I will just die with the rest of my family in my sleep and wake up and be with Jesus. That's what's going to happen. But during some of those wrestling times with God, when life was heating up, and I realized that good people end up hurting, and tragedy strikes even Christian people like us, I battled with God. And I battled because of the ripples of my life. I was a husband, and I was a father, and I was a pastor who needed to show up. But all I really wanted to do was tap out. If you're not familiar with the t- word tap out, it, it comes from the world of combat sports. It's another name for submission or giving up. Now, isn't it true that many of us in this room have at least thought about tapping out when it comes to God? Because there are times when I question God that I don't think I doubted his existence anymore as much as I didn't like him very much. And I said, you know what, God? Forget it. I'm done with you. That's who you are? I don't want anything to do with you. What's the point in being with you if I can't do what I want to do? What's the point in being with you if you're not going to protect me from the kind of pain and hurt that other people in life are going through? I'm out of here. I'm giving up on this. In those moments... Life was not what I thought it should be. Life was tough. And it wasn't as much for me in the external battles. I hope I can say this, but it was actually more of my inner battles. My inner battles were strong, and the wear and tear of what was going on inside of me was sort of ripping me apart. And the the message on repeat in my mind was a message of doubt or fear or insecurity or condemnation or whatever those things are. And you get this, right? You understand. Well, that's where Peter is. He's wrestling with what he's just heard the Messiah is. And he doesn't like it very much. Fast forward a few few months in Peter's life. And Jesus is now sharing this final meal with his disciples. And he has this strange conversation with Peter. He says to Peter, Satan has asked to put you through the ringer which we understand that term, but actually what the scripture says is Satan is asked to sift you like wheat, which means to put you through the ringer. And what Jesus is saying is, you're going to want to tap out, Peter. You're going to want to bail because life is going to be incredibly 
tough. And you're going to want to throw your hands in the air and scream forget it and walk away from church and walk away from me and walk away from God because it's not meshing with what Satan is whispering in your ear. And Peter is racked with emotion at this point. He is tore up. He isn't, he isn't sure what it means to follow, but he knows that his dream of the Messiah was dead. And whatever this Jesus thing is teaching is something totally different. And along with this, his dream of being with his understanding of Messiah is dead. And so his place of power in the Messiah's kingdom is dead. And in that moment when Jesus says, you're going to want to tap out, Peter, Peter reestates his loyalty to Jesus because none of us like the reality. You know what? I might bail on this. And that's what Peter does. He says, hey, I'm with you all the way, no matter what happens. There, all these guys are going to bail, but not me. I'm, I'm with you. Well, you guys know, even if you haven't been in church much, you know that what Jesus predicted happened actually did happen. And Peter ends up denying Jesus three different times as Jesus is arrested and tortured. And as Peter denied Jesus the third time, the circumstances were such that Jesus was across the courtyard. And the moment that Peter denied Jesus the third time, the scriptures say Jesus and Peter locked eyes. Now, when you tap out on the person you love the most or who loves you the most, that's one of the most painful things you can experience in life. Fair? And so the scriptures say, when Jesus and Peter locked eyes, Peter left, and it says he wept bitterly. The Greek in that means he was sobbing so that you could hear it, if you've ever familiar. It wasn't a quiet little whimper. It was like, whoa, whoa, you know, that, whatever that sounds like. That was what he was doing. Why? Because when you lock eyes with the person you love the most and you quit on them, that hurts, that's pain, or they quit on you. I think. Scripture says, or legend says, church tradition says, Peter was in, ended up being crucified for his life, for his commitment to Jesus. And, um, and, and the, the, the tradition is that when Peter was crucified, he said, I, I'm not fit to die like my Savior. And so they asked to hang him upside down. And they crucified him upside down, which seems like the low point of his life. But I don't think it is. I think what we've just heard is probably the low point of his life. He tapped out. He bailed. He betrayed those he loved the most. He had disappointed himself. He'd become unmoored. He had regret. He had actions he wished he could undo. He had words he wished he could unsay. And everybody in this room, everybody watching, we all get this, don't we? It's a moment filled with heat. It's a moment that will scar us and be part of us for the rest of our lives. And we all have those moments. Well, there's one other vignette from Peter's story. And actually, it's this last little picture of why I even wanted to discuss this whole understanding and Peter's experience with you this morning. It's this part that I wanted to give you. The tragedy of the crucifixion has happened. Peter's going fishing. And I, and I wonder about that whole experience. I mean, I try to put my... I, this is just Tom, so it could be wrong. But he, 
I think he's questioning God. I think as he's trying to fish up there, I think he, he thinks, have I wasted the last three years of my life? And then he begins to go introspection, because that's probably what I would do. What kind of friend am I that bails or deserts my closest friend? More than that, why does God allow bad things to happen, like seeing my closest friend die on a cross, seeing someone I love die, seeing someone I love abandon me, whatever. And then he had to ask, why did I deny the only friend who only offered me love? I mean, when it was time, when we were on the mat and we were locked in an embrace, why did I tap out? Peter's living with tapping out. You know one thing I learned from tapping out? Sometimes tapping out is more difficult than the fight. Jesus appears to Peter, and they have this famous conversation where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Peter denies Jesus three times, and three times Jesus asks Peter to affirm his love for him. Jesus is dealing with a, tap, with a deserter, someone who's tapped out. Now, now dial in, because this is the moment. Jesus is dealing with someone who bailed on him, like everybody in this room has done. And we all sort of are on the edge of our seat, because whatever happens for Peter and Jesus in this exchange could also happen for me. Because I've done this too. And so Jesus goes to Peter, dealing with this deserter, dealing with someone who didn't stand with him in his time of greatest trial, dealing with this guy who understands he will not stand when life gets tough. And he asks Peter the question three times. But, but it's not just love. In our world, we have I love the dog and I love my wife. Those are two different kinds of love, but they sound the same. Fair? I love this steak and I love my children. You know, those are two different things. Obviously, you love one more than the other. You can decide. But anyway, that's kind of what, what love is. But in Greek, there's actually, I think, like six different words for love. And in this passage, there's actually two different words for love. It's really the tale of two loves to understand this whole story. And to be honest with you, I've misunderstood this passage my whole life. There's agape love. That's God love, right? We all understand that. We're well Christianed. But uh, just to give you a definition, the Jesus Storybook Bible defines agape like this. Never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's kind of a neat definition for God love. And then there's phileo love. This is what I would call fist bump love. Or, or brotherly love. This is like when guys, when we hug, it's like one, two, three pats, and that's it. Otherwise, it gets creepy from there. But, you know, that's kind of what guys do. That's what this kind of love is. It's Philadelphia. It's the city of brotherly love. This is two loves featured in this story. Now, let's see if I can do my best to explain this to you. So Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agape love me? Always and forever love. And Peter responds, you know, I'm not, all, I'm not there. I'm not all in. I can't agape love you, Jesus, but I can phileo. Come on, give me some love. Jesus asked the same question again. Peter, do you agape? Always and forever love me. 
And Peter's wrestling with this in his mind. I tapped out. I bailed when he needed me the most. I was angry with him. I screamed at him. Peter's tired of living a lie. And you'll see this for the rest of his ministry. He's tired of being fake and plastic, and so he's not going to put on for anybody, which I love about that, this guy. He says, Jesus, I know you died for me. I know the whole crucifixion and resurrection. That's all impressive, but to be honest with you, I'm not there. I'm here. I got fist bump love for you. I'm not all in. And then Jesus asks one more time. But this time, there is a dramatic. There is such an important shift in the question Jesus asks. The third time Jesus says to Peter, Simon, another name for Peter, for Peter, son of John, do you love me? Pause. Get this. You know what that is? Fist bump love. Okay, not agape, I get that. But can you phileo love me? Can you fist bump love me, Peter? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you phileo love me? Not agape. And Peter says, Lord, you know all things. You know. I phileo love you. Then Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Oh, guys, this is such great news for you people. It's such great news for me. Anybody who's tapped out, because what this means is, Peter says, yeah, I love you like that. I do love you like that. And it's incredibly encouraging to me as a believer who knows what it's like to wrestle with God. And in this moment, Jesus says, you still have reservations, Tom? You still have doubts? Are you still angry with me about what happened to mom? What happened over there? What happened in your history? Are you still angry at what happened with dad? Are you still mad about that? Okay, Jesus says. I'm good with that. That love's enough. You're enough. I can work. Come on. I can work with you. I'm so glad this is in there. I couldn't do what I do for a living if this wasn't in there. Tim Keller says it so, so well. He says, it's not the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith that actually gives us hope. Praise the Lord. So I was thinking this week, if Jesus asked me the question, how would I respond? Well, maybe I'd stop trying to fix myself. <laughs> maybe I'd stop trying to be a better dad. Listen to me. Maybe I'd stop trying to be a better husband or plastic Christian, maybe. Maybe I'd stop doing that. And instead, I'd focus on giving God what I have, knowing that God said he can work with that. Tom, you waver between belief and doubt sometimes? Yep. Fist bump. You get mad at God sometimes, but you believe in him? Yeah, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. I get mad at things he does or doesn't do, but I believe he's there and I believe he loves me. Fist bump love. I haven't felt a connection with God in years. 
You keep holding on. Because what Peter tells us is, God works with that. God can work with that. So I was thinking, if I could go back 30 years and have coffee with 20-year-old Tom. I don't know what y'all think about, but this is what I think about. This is the, wouldn't that be kind of an interesting discussion to think about? Just, I don't know. If I could go back and have coffee with 20-year-old Tom, knowing that 20-year-old Tom was going to want to tap out and was going to tap out. There's 20-year-old Tom's going to be in some relationship, and God's going to be here, the relationship's going to be here, and I'm going to say, you know what, God, I'm done with you. I'm pursuing this. Pile up a mess of hurt, a mess of regret, a mess of shame, a mess of, mess of whatever, and then like, have the whole thing shattered, and then say, oh, God, that was, a, that was a bad decision. Or God's going to do something that's going to make me so irate. I'm going to be so angry, and I'm not going to understand. I'm going to... So what would I say going back to 20-year-old Tom? I think I would say a couple of things. First of all, there's some things I wouldn't say. Here's the one thing I wouldn't say. I would not say to 20-year-old Tom, hey, you need to try harder. Because somebody shared that with me, and that was stupid. Because if I try harder and I have success, that means I did it. And I can't do it. I also wouldn't say to 20-year-old Tom, live as safely as possible. Don't make anybody mad and don't upset God. Just try to fly under the radar. And I wouldn't say to 20-year-old Tom, love conservatively. Put your heart in there. Put bars around it. Lock it up. I'm not talking about like love that's kind of like, you know, you're just kind of hormone-filled kind of love. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about... I'm talking about love. I'm not saying, I'm saying there's a tendency, there's this risk I think that all of us have that we just try to don't love deeply because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. But here's what I would say. A couple of things, 20-year-old Tom. When you and God are locked in a wrestling embrace, keep praying. No, I don't want to talk to God when I'm mad at God. When I've tapped out, I want to go like Peter, and I want to bust out and just run away from God, just like all of us do. I would tell me, dude, keep, keep praying. I stink at praying, Tom. And I would say, Tom, yes, you do. But prayer is how you communicate with God. Find your way. Write it, say it, walk in the woods with it, whatever. But God can handle it. And God listens. And eventually you'll see that God actually will act. Fist bump love. I think the other thing I would say to 20-year-old Tom, slow down. Because see, Tom, what you're doing is You're trying to live life at such a pace so that you don't have to deal with what's going on inside of you. You don't have to deal with the reality that you tapped out and are tapping out. Or you're in a relationship right now that you're tapping out. And I would say, you know, Tom, it's probably good for you to wrestle with God for a period of time. Just like Paige told us in her video. 
Life never slows down, Tom. And here's what I know about you, because I know it's me, and one day you're going to be me, and I'm no longer you. <laughs> what you're going to do, Tom, is you're going to push this down. You're going to push the times that you tapped out, and you disappointed God, and you disappointed yourself, and you're going to push those, you're going to push those things down. And eventually what's going to happen is there's not going to be any room for that stuff to go. And what's going to happen is you're going to blow up, and you're going to blow out. And what will happen is you'll become a worse husband, a worse father, and a worse contributor to, to society. So slow down and let God deal with you. It's important. It matters. Last thing I'd tell 20-year-old Tom, you keep showing up, man. You keep showing up. No self-sabotage. Don't you do it. It's stupid and you know it. Invest in relationships. No tapping out. No saying try harder. You're not earning anything, 20-year-old Tom. You received a gift. We're staying faithful. Because one day you will see that God was there all along. Aren't you thankful? One day you will see, you will bust through the fight. And you will be covered in blood and covered in sweat and hurting. And you will bust through and you'll say, oh my goodness, you had me all along. And if you go off the rails, Tom, when you come out the other side, you're going to have pieces of your life that you're going to try to have to put back together. So you keep showing up. Give God phileo, love. And he'll lead you to agape. He will lead you to agape love. Lord, they, these are good people here. And I feel so honored to be able to share with them what you placed on my heart today. And um, Lord, I pray. I don't know if everybody in the room can necessarily, and everybody's watching, can necessarily relate to the illustration I've been using this morning. But man, whatever terms they would use for tapping out, I do know that everybody who is listening to the sound of my voice has come to this moment where they want to tap out. Sometimes the tap out's on a big issue, Lord. We just want to tap out on a major deal, on a life deal. And sometimes tapping out is on a little, a little decision, a decision to listen to something different, a decision to pursue a relationship, a decision to misuse money or abuse alcohol or, 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 or log on to go to pursue and feed some addiction, those little decisions. And those are little tap-out moments that everybody in the room is sort of wondering about in their own lives. Maybe some of them in the room, Lord, and maybe some who are watching are, dealing with the tap outs that I faced, you know, like, man, um, God, you, you were not what I thought you would be. So I pray only by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would encourage my brothers and sisters right now. Some of them, Lord, tapped out on you and, and, and they're not sure you'd take them back. Some of them tapped out on you and the kind of love that you ask for is intimidating to us. We don't know how to do it. But I think I can fist bump love you, Lord. I can fist bump love you. Yeah, I'll give you this love, Lord. 
you lead me to a deeper level. You lead me back from tapping out to fully engaged in the game. And I pray you would do that across the Alive community this day. Hey, listen, guys. If you've tapped out, it's not too late. God wants you. He understands. He'll meet you where you are and grow you to where he wants you to be. You just got to, you have to obey. You have to do what he asked you to do. In your name.